0: Hello everyone, my name is Reese Garlinski and this is Young History, episode 135 on Sri Lanka. The capital of this country is actually two places. There's Sri, Jayawaradantura, Kote, and there's also Colombo. One is the executive capital and the other is like the political and economical capital. Now, in the epic, known as the Ramayana, the land was actually described as Lanka, which simply means island in Sanskrit. After colonialism, the name Sri Lanka was adopted. Sri means veneration or great respect in Sanskrit. So Sri Lanka pretty much means the venerable island. The first human remains in East Asia were actually found in Sri Lanka, and on top of that, we're also going to get into some other facts about the country. Sinhalese, as a language, comes from North India, but the script came from Southern India. It also has a lot of similarities to the Tamil script. The belief is that it was originated on leaves because the curvy structure of it was less likely to tear a leaf when it was used for writing. Sri Lanka was the first country in the world to elect a female prime minister. Sirimavo Bandaranaike became the world's first female prime minister in 1960. Sri Lanka is also known for its vibrant festivals. The most famous is the Esala Parahera Festival, which takes place in the area of Kote, and features a grand performance by dancers, drummers, and decorated elephants in honor of the sacred tooth relic of the Buddha. We'll get into that soon. And Sri Lanka, on top of all this, actually has the 17th largest military in the world, despite it being a very small country geographically. So with all that being said, that's going to get us into our start with Sri Lanka, and I just don't want to waste any more time because we've got a lot of history to cover, in a country that I did not expect to go this deep on. We got a lot of layers to explain a lot of different nuances with this country. So we're going to get into it. We're going to explain it and it's going to be fun. So as always, thank you guys so much for being here. And my name is Reese Karlinski. This is Young History and this is Sri Lanka. You guys have a good one. Our origins began around 60,000 years ago when Sri Lanka was still attached to the Indian landmass through a land bridge. The remains I mentioned in the intro were actually found here. The remains of the man who lived here lived at least 38,000 years ago. And he was named Balangoda, man by the archaeologists who found him. Around 3000 BC, the Indus Valley civilizations were nearing the Indian subcontinent. Sri Lanka was filled with hunter-gatherers that were mentioned in trade deals with Egypt. There is not a lot of historical records between this point and the future, so we're just going to make a big jump. Right around 1000 BC, we get one of the more influential cultures to Sri Lanka's history. The Dravidian culture moved from South India to Sri Lanka. The culture mirrored the Vedic culture that was present in North India. Pottery, written symbols, and customs were very similar between these two cultures. The proto-written language of symbols used by the Dravidian culture may have influenced languages that arose in the region's future. During this time, the story of Ramayana was told. In the story, an evil king named Ravana kidnapped a royal woman named Sita. He then took her to his kingdom on the island of Sri Lanka. There is no evidence of this actually occurring, but it is very relevant to the religious beliefs of the region, and those religious beliefs tie very much into the culture of both the people here. One of those people is the Sinhalese. They are the largest ethnic group of Sri Lanka today, and they have their story told in the historical fiction novel called The Mahavamsa. This story starts in 600 BC. Supadevi, who was a princess of the Vanga culture, had a son with a lion man. The son was Prince Vijaya, who was meant to rule Singapore. The Kingdom of Singapore also doesn't have any historical records and is not the Singapore in Singapore that we've covered already. Prince Vijaya was deemed unfit to rule and was exiled to Sri Lanka with his followers. He landed at Manar in 543 BC. Vijaya met indigenous people here. He met the Nagas and the Yakhas. The latter is believed to be the ancestors of the present-day indigenous group called the Vedas. Nagas were South Indian traders who migrated to the island. Keep that in mind. Vijaya founded the kingdom of Tambapani, which is corroborated by the Greeks. The kingdom had advanced technology for its time. There was a massive irrigation system that allowed agriculture systems to develop, and this system used water flow to create artificial lakes for rice creation and for the feeding of animals. Following Vijaya, Dikemapia Tisa ruled from 307 to 267 BC. The kingdom of Anuradhapura in this year was cut out. In this year, a cutout from the tree where the Buddha reached enlightenment was planted. Today, this tree is the oldest human-planted tree that we have known planting dates for. The first Buddhist temple was built in the city of Anuradhapura, which is in the northern part of Sri Lanka. Buddhist temples are built with a stupa, which is a pointy top in the temple meant to hold an artifact to help with meditation focus. Port cities popped up, and one of them was Trincomalee. In the city, the largest Hindu temple on the island, Konaswaram, was built. The other port was Mantai. Both of these cities had a lot of interaction with South Indian Tamil traders. After Tisa's rule, the principality of Kalaniya and Ruhana popped up in the southern part of Sri Lanka. Just like Tisa, they were ruled by Sinhalese dynasty members. Eventually, Anuradhapura formed into a greater kingdom itself, and then was invaded by South Indian Tamil raiders, specifically members of the Chola dynasty. Elalan was their princely leader. He took power in the city of Anuradhapura. He ruled here from 205 to 161 BC. And he is seen as a just leader and sometimes regaled as an early national hero Two, Dutu Kamuna ruled from 161 to 138 BC. He defeated Elalan to reclaim the city and he went on to conquer Kilania and Ruhana. He became the first leader to rule over the entire island. He built a temple that holds the most Buddhist artifacts in the world the Ruan Welisia Stupa. All these achievements earned him the nickname the Great, and he is one of only two Sri Lankan rulers to earn this title. The Tamil invaders returned and established power over the island right around 103 CE. They ousted the leader named Valagamba, and this began a two-decade era that was led by five Tamil, or Dravidian, rulers. And to bounce back to Lallan, he was actually the one who defended the Sinhalese kingdom of Anuradhapura from the Tamil invaders, and that's why he's seen as a national hero. So then you get the also Sinhalese rule of Dudugamuna, and then from there, the Tamils start to come in. Now, now that we're back on that, we can talk about the Tamils themselves. So the Tamils are the second most populous group in Sri Lanka. They originated from South India and originally started to interact with the island as traders. They formed into different civilizations and came as invaders, as we saw earlier. The Tamils speak Dravidian, which is different from the Indo-Aryan of the Sinhalese, and they are slash were mostly Hindu compared to the very Buddhist Sinhalese. But it seems that the Tamil genetics are not very different from the Sinhalese, and they eventually intermarried to create different dynasties and a new culture in the country. Valagamba returned to Anuradhapura and usurped power in 89. Valagamba was most famous for constructing the Avhyagiri Vihara Buddhist Monastery and the Dambula Rock Temple. The latter has some of the most ancient painted ceilings in the world. Queen Anula became the first female leader in 48 BC. Her reign was short and only lasted until 44 BC. The first bloodline of the Sinhalese leaders died out. This led to the first house of Lambakarma being established. From 22 BC to 67 CE, the first house of Lumakarna rose to prominence in Anuradhapura. The first king of this house was Vasaba. He ruled from 67 to 111 CE and he helped modernize the agricultural system. His grandson, Kajabahu, became king in 114 CE. He defended the kingdom of Latteranapura from the South Indian Chola king, known as Karikala. The South Indian Chola king, Karikala. Mahasena ruled from 273 to 301 CE. He built the Jeddah Yanaramaya Stupa, which was the third largest building in the world at the time of its construction. The only two that were taller are the two pyramids of Egypt. The kingdom of Anuradhapura traded with Rome as it became the greatest empire in the western world. The Sixth Dravidians era began in 429, when Tamils invaded and successfully took over Anuradhapura. This era lasted until 455, where they were ousted from power by the Sinhalese commander, Dahatusena. Dahatusena became king this same year and ruled until 473, and he established the dynasty of House Moriah. Dahatusena had two sons. One was from his queen, and the other was a concubine child, which was a mistress to royalty. The concubine's son, Kashapa, ousted his father in 473 to prevent his half-brother and rightful heir to the throne from ascending to it. His brother was named Mogalana. Kaisapa killed his father by building a wall around him in the very kingdom that he ruled over. He famously constructed Siguria. It was a palace on a massive rock in an empty plain. The palace is filled with wall art and giant lion sculptures to guard the entrance of the palace. This is still around today and is one of the greatest sites in Sri Lanka. The royal half-brother, Mogalana returned to the island in 497 with a large army he raised in South India. With this army, Mogalana ousted his brother and became prominent in the region once again. Then we jump to 691 when the House of Lambakarna returned to power. Muslim traders reached the island and started to spread their culture here. And then we need to go international to get a little more connection to what's going on. The Chola Empire had become a huge power in South Asia. Their leader from 985 to 1014 was Rajraja Chola. He expanded Chola rule to the Indonesian and Malay peninsulas. In 993, he defeated the Anuradhapura kingdom and established the Chola Empire here. The kingdom of Anuradhapura was permanently defeated and ended nearly 1,300 years of this kingdom's existence. Under Chola rule, the capital was moved from Anuradhapura to Palanarra in 1017. A member of the Sinhalese royal family named Vijayabahu amassed an army in the southern part of the island, which was not captured by the Chola Empire, and he led it into an invasion of the new capital. Vijayabahu conquered Talanarrua in 1055. He officially re-established Sinhalese rule under the house of Vijayabahu, and this began the kingdom of Talanarrua and under this kingdom, there was a royal family clash, mainly between the Kalingas and the Arya. The Kalingas intermarried with the royal family Anva Pradesh. The Aryas married with Tamil royalty. Both sides saw the other marriage as one that would divide the dynasty by impurifying the bloodline. The bloodlines battled until the Kalinga bloodline was pushed out of royalty upon the death of Mahinda the Sixth. Parakrambahu was a major player from the Arya branch. He is the second of two Sri Lankan kings to be named the Great. He expanded control over the entire island, he made the irrigation system the largest it had ever been, and he made Buddhist statues across the island. He also took over ports in India and fought a war in Burma slash Myanmar. Upon his death in 1186, the conflict between the Kalinga and Arya sparked up once again. Upon his death, he was also honored as the Great for the great achievements he had brought to the religious side of Buddhism and for the great expansion he brought to the kingdom. Then to bounce back into the conflict, the throne would pass between many members of each royal family throughout the 1100s. One of the significant rulers was King Nisanka, because he commissioned a 26-foot stone tablet that is filled with stories of Sinhalese script. Today, it is still one of the most well-protected and well-preserved sites in the entire country, because it gives a deep context to how far back the Sinhalese script had been used, and it was used to tell a lot of stories about the kingdom at the time. Kalingamaha ruled from 1215 to 1255. He invaded Anuradhapura and Polonnaruwa in 1215. Magha brought a lot of destruction to these cities and it caused the Sinhalese royal family and their people to migrate southwest to form the much smaller kingdom of Dampedania. Magha established the Tamil kingdom of Jaffna and spread it across the northern half of the island. Around 1255 the house of Arya Chakravart took power in Jaffna. The kingdom of Dampadenia was inherited by the house of siri Bol. in the mid-1300s the kingdom of Dampadenia had its capital moved to Kote on the southwest coast of the country the region evolved into the kingdom of kote Zhang he was a famous Chinese explorer during the Ming China period he arrived in Sri Lanka in the early 1400s and he wanted to expend Ming influence into the island but both kingdoms on Sri Lanka rejected it this started a brief conflict between China and Sri Lanka. Cote eventually expanded its control over the entire island, from the Jaffna. Cote took over the entire island from Jaffna, but Cote control did not last long, because the Portuguese arrived in 1505. The Portuguese were led by Don Lorenzo de Almeria. He named the island Ceylon. In 1521, Vijayabahu VII was king of Cote. He had many sons who all formed their own Sinhalese kingdoms after killing their father. There was the kingdom of Sirawaka, Rajama, and the kingdom of Kandy. The Portuguese expanded in the island because of the divisions in the Sinhalese kingdoms. They conquered the entire kingdom of Cote by 1597. By 1619, the entirety of the Jaffna kingdom was conquered as well. The Portuguese established Colombo as the capital of Portuguese Ceylon. The kingdom of Kandy was only one remaining on the island. The Portuguese system kept members of the kingdom of Kandy in power in Ceylon to maintain stability. Some leaders of the kingdom converted to Catholicism. After a lot of this happened, we see one of the more significant rulers of Kandy. Vimald Haruma Saruya I is regarded as the founder of Kandy because he revoked the conversion to Catholicism and made the kingdom Buddhist once again. He also helped the kingdom earn independence, and he also famously brought the tooth of the Buddha, yes, the literal tooth of the Buddha, to the kingdom and made a temple for it. The Temple of the Tooth eventually became one of the most important Buddhist relics and this temple became the most important Buddhist place to visit if you honored the religion. Rajasinghe II ruled from 1635 to 1687. He offered the Dutch trade exclusivity if they assisted in the battle against the Portuguese because the Sinhalese and everyone else living on the island was sick of the abuses of Portuguese rule and felt that the Dutch would be much better. The Dutch took control of the island after defeating the Portuguese and established Dutch Ceylon. The Dutch presence in Ceylon began in the early 1600s. They arrived initially as traders under the Dutch East India Company. Their involvement in Ceylon was part of the broader strategy to establish a trading network across all Asia. The Dutch initially allied with the Kingdom of Candy to oust the Portuguese, as we said before. So after the Dutch allied with the Kingdom of Candy to push the Portuguese out, The Dutch were able to succeed in capturing all the Portuguese fortresses. Dutch rule lasted from 1640 to 1796 because they established it as soon as they could after the Portuguese were pushed out. Again, the Kingdom of Candy was given autonomy so that stability would remain in the region. Under Dutch rule, they established a colonial administration in Ceylon. They divided the island into administrative units and imposed a system of land tenure, which included revenue collection methods such as the land tax. The Dutch also implemented a legal system known as Roman-Dutch law, which combined elements of Roman rule with Dutch customary law. This legal system is very influential in the modern legal system of Sri Lanka to this day. The Dutch also exploited Ceylon's natural resources, particularly cinnamon, which was highly valued in Europe at the time because this was all part of the greater spice trade. They established a monopoly over the cinnamon trade. Eventually, members of the lower classes... Okay. They established a monopoly over the cinnamon trade. Eventually, members of the lower class were forced into labor systems that forced them to work on areas that were harvesting cinnamon. Then, we get to see the British. The British first became involved in Ceylon during their conflict with the Dutch in the late 1700s. They initially took control of the coastal areas previously held by the Dutch. In 1815, they extended their rule over the entire island after deposing the King of Candy, the last native kingdom. This effectively brought the entire island under British control. The British invaded the region and fully defeated the Dutch in 1796, and British rule officially began this year. British Ceylon was established. The British defeated King Sri Vakrama Rajashina in 1815 to become the only colonial power to take over the entire island of Sri Lanka. The Kingdom of Kandy was dissolved, but its descendants did not disappear keep that in mind. The British exported a lot of coffee, but a coffee rot disease spread across Asia in the 1850s and 60s. This hit Sri Lanka and made the British turn to another resource very popular in Ceylon, tea. The British brought in thousands of indentured workers from India to harvest the tea plants. Today, the descendants of these workers are known as Indian Tamils, which are different from the Sri Lankan Tamils who have lived in the Jaffna region for millennia. The British rule had a lasting impact on Sri Lankan society and culture. The establishment of missionary schools and the promotion of English education led to the emergence of a Western-educated elite. Additionally, the British policies on land ownership, such as the Crown Lands Encroachments Ordinance, affected the traditional landholding patterns of rural society because now the British were taking more and more of that land to use as plantation land. The early 1900s saw the rise of nationalist movements in Ceylon. These movements initially sought constitutional reforms and greater self-rule. Over time, the call for complete independence grew stronger. The Donal Homor Commission and the Solbury Commission provided frameworks for constitutional reforms that would lead to greater self-governance. Post-World War II, the world was beginning to decolonize in the new empire-free world. Well, at least that's what they claimed, but there are still a lot of possessions around the world from Europeans and Americans, but nonetheless. This led in 1948 to Ceylon being touched by this new wave of independence. Independence officially came on February 4th, 1948 as the Dominion of Ceylon. It maintained the British monarch as the head of state. There were a lot of checks and balances, but they would be challenged within just a few decades. In the 1950s, Sinhalese lawmakers made Sinhalese the only national language. The same lawmakers also changed the system to limit employment for Tamils. This is one of the earliest onsets of the Sinhalese, who had been the ones more favored and in power during the colonial time, actually using their power of an independent country to put the Tamils down. This is the first of many times this will happen, and just I want you to keep remembering that as we go through this. This caused there to be a rise in hatred for Tamils. Riots against Tamils occurred in 1956, 1958, and 1977. Throughout all of them, many Tamils were killed by violence, and this caused a huge rise in tension between the two people groups. Nationalist movements were ripe in Ceylon, and this led to real change in 1972. In that year, Ceylon officially became Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka, for the first time in its history, became a republic and not a monarchy. In 1981, another anti-Tamil riot occurred. This time, the Sinhalese rioters attacked the Jaffna Public Library. This library held thousands of manuscripts and books, which made it one of the largest collections in Asia. The rioters burned this library and everything in it to the ground. The Tamils reacted to this by creating separatist groups. They believed that there should be a separate country on Sri Lanka called Elam, that it would be exclusively for Tamils. The Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam, or Tamil Tigers, became the most prominent of the separatist groups. In 1983, they attacked an army unit and killed 13 soldiers. In reaction to this, the Sinhalese started the largest anti-Tamil race riot that had ever occurred. These riots killed thousands of Tamils, injured thousands more, and led to lots of looting and attacks on Tamil buildings, businesses, and organizations. The Tamil Tigers gained more recruits and carved out a region of... Of the nation for themselves this region was the former land of the jaffna kingdom in the north and was the entirety of the eastern coast once these lands were taken over the civil war officially began the sri Lankan civil war lasted from 1983 all the way until 2009 the war was mainly between the tamil tigers and the national army of sri lanka the tamil tigers were a well-organized unit of motivated tamil fighters they had Everything to lose. They were fighting for their people, their family, their future, they were fighting to avenge deaths, they were fighting to avenge wrongs that had fallen upon them, and more. On the other hand, the National Army was unstable and were only there as part of their jobs because the government started to forcibly enlist people and force people who were in the military to go fight in this war against fellow Sri Lankans. As part of the wartime efforts, the government enacted policies that empowered the police and military. These officials were allowed to arrest anyone at any moment if they were seen as suspicious of terrorist links. This doctrine was known as the Prevention of Terrorism Act, or PTA. The police and soldiers were made untouchable. Horrendous acts occurred when the soldiers and police started to target large media organizations, journalists, and younger Tamils. 4,000 people disappeared from villages and Tamil towns. Later evidence would show that the soldiers and police kept family members from their loved ones and that they deposed of corpses however they felt. There was no trial for the accused, and that's why so many people disappeared. The First War of Alam is the conflict that goes on in the greater umbrella of the Civil War from 1983 to 1987. Battles between the two sides were brutal. The army committed many atrocities against Tamils by bombing residential areas. On top of this, there were many cases of rape, and kidnapping in Tamil towns by the Sinhalese soldiers. And the worst part is, both of these things were heavily denied by the Sinhalese army, and that would continue to be the case throughout the entirety of this war. There was a very tense and short-lasting ceasefire that occurred in 1987, but that ceasefire ended in 1990. One more back and forth occurred, and the Second Alam War started out. This war lasted from 1990 to 1995, and was just as brutal as the first part. In 1991, the Prime Minister of India, Rajiv Gandhi, was assassinated by Tiger forces via a suicide bombing. The international community began to label the Tigers a terrorist organization for their use of suicide bombers, but they would still remain heavily uninvolved in the conflict. In 1993, Ranasinghe Permasaya, the president of Sri Lanka, was killed by a Tamil Tiger bombing in the capital. This attack showed that the Tigers were willing to make anyone who opposed the creation of Elam an enemy of them and would also make them disappear. The world started to catch wind of what horrors were occurring in Sri Lanka. By 1995, 75% of Tamils had emigrated from Sri Lanka or were displaced from their homes. In 1990, the Tamil Tigers ordered all Muslims to leave the territory that they controlled. Within hours, at least 50,000 Muslims were forced out of their homes. The Third Elam War began in 1995 and lasted until 2002. The Tamil Tigers were forced out of the Jaffna Peninsula, and the conflicts that occurred between all sorts of Tamils and Sinhalese, from civilians all the way up to the highest-ranking commanders, is the reason this war broke out. And once the Tigers were forced out of the Jaffna Peninsula, they ordered everyone in the peninsula to flee as part of their plan to retake the region. At one point, over 600,000 people were fleeing from Jaffna. Eventually, around 200,000 people became part of the new breakaway state led by the Tamil Tigers. This state lasted for about 10 years and was based in Kila and Mula Itivu. Kila became a rebel city that included a court system, its own police, and its own publication system to support the Tigers. This system was used to control the people of the area and radicalize them against the national Sinhalese government. The Tamil Tigers also used suicide bombers in 1996. Suicide bombing tactics were used on the Colombo Central Bank in the capital. This killed 91 people and injured 1,400 more. Because of this, hundreds of children were recruited into the Tamil Tiger Army. Reports from many families near Kilinochchi stated that parents were approached by Tiger representatives and were asked to give a child for service. If people rejected this, they would be beaten severely and left for dead. Children were also taken on their way to school, into the army. The recruitment of children became so bad that by 2002, one-third of all school-age children in the area of Kilinochchi were forced into the army. In 2002, there was another peace treaty and ceasefire. But in 2003, the Tamil Tigers made harsh requests to the Sri Lankan government, demanding that Elam be carved out of the nation's borders. Once they were rejected, the Tamil Tigers broke the ceasefire on many occasions with attacks against the Sinhalese. An East Coast Tamil leader, known as Colonel Karuna, defected from the Tigers and led thousands of his soldiers away. This highlighted the difference between the Jaffna Tamils and the East Coast Tamils. Karuna went from a leader of the Tamil Tigers to the second highest ranking government member in the capital of the national Sri Lanka government. Mahinda Rajapaksa ascended to the presidency in 2005. He won on a platform of war against the Tamil Tigers. He was a former military leader that rose in popularity for his personality and staunch nationalism. He would use this nationalism to launch his people headfirst into the conflict with the Tigers. His government was armed by China and Pakistan. Then, the U.S. and India gave the government intelligence against the Tamils. The reason for this was that the Western world was very, very tense and anti-anything that had to do with suicide bombers because of the attacks that occurred on 9-11. So, when these suicide bombers popped up, the U.S. was willing to get more involved with the war to suppress the Tamils, who they saw as a terrorist organization. In retaliation to this, the Tamils locked down their territory and began a fearsome forced recruitment policy. By 2006, 25% of Tamils left for other nations to escape this recruitment, and all the moves by both these sides led to the Fourth Alam War. This section of the war lasted from 2006 to 2009. In 2006, the Valley Poonam, which is the area between Jaffna and the central part of the country, was bombed by the National Army, and the attacks specifically were on Kilinochchi. These killed five dozen young schoolgirls, and the Tigers claimed this building was an orphanage for 400 girls that were there. The UN condemned this action, and the National Army didn't back down. They defended the bombing by saying that these girls were legitimate military targets for being in that area. By 2007, the National Military retook the East Coast from the Tigers and held on to the Jaffna Peninsula. The National Army surrounded the Tamil Tigers that were in the Valley Punam between the center of the island and the Japna Peninsula. The National Army was 30 times bigger in 2007 than it was in 1983. This was done through the foreign funding that made the military more attractive and powerful, and because of the radicalization of both sides, people who were on the national side of borders, people who were Sinhalese, now had this great motivation to attack the Tamil Tigers because they were no longer just a breakaway group, they were terrorists that were attacking the country. That is what was propagated to the people of the national side of this conflict. Of course, the other thing was also propagated on the other side. Tamils and the Tamil Tigers were very big propagators of the idea that the national army was repressive, that the nation had everything against them, that they wanted them dead, All sorts of things like this. So both sides are extremely radicalized and it leads to the conflict escalating more. In January of 2009, the Defense Secretary helped organize the Battalion of the Ghost of Death. This battalion and the Defense Secretary created a list of journalists who were named Tamil sympathizers. Anyone on this list was ordered to be dead. The government also made it very hard for international editors and journalists to get into the country. So they could do whatever they pleased within the country without being checked by international fact checkers. Despite this, many international sources accused the government of lowballing the amount of casualties in the war and accused them of using heavy weaponry on civilians despite the atrocities of the government, the world was so twisted up in its anti-terrorism doctrine that almost every country in the EU labeled the Tamil tigers an terrorist organization. This meant that the government was getting international support to battle the Tamils once again. Prahoran was the leader of the Tigers in the 4th War of Elam. He refused to give in to the national forces. He enacted a tactic that put hundreds of thousands of Tamils at risk. He wanted Tamil people to either fall further back into the Poonam Valley and support the Tamils or leave. This meant that people who ran away from the Tamils risked being shot as deserters or they risked being shot by national forces for coming from the Tamil region. This also meant that those that stayed in the region were now more compact into one area. Those that lived in the cramped Poonam Valley gave the area a new name, the cage. The cage was shrunk more and more by late 2009, where the National Army pushed the Tigers into the area around Mulativu. This pushed the Tigers to horrible and radical actions. The Tamils began to shoot hundreds of Tamil civilians dead. They did this to prevent international intervention to save living civilians from the war zone. They believed that if the civilians were no longer there, there would be less reason for the international community to come and interfere in the conflict. Anyone who managed to escape the area near Mulatavu were seen as traitors and lost their community. On top of that, anyone who failed an escape attempt would be beaten and their children would be forcibly recruited into the Tamil Tigers. The very few that escaped the cage were left in underdeveloped camps for Tamils that were governed by the Sinhalese and were nothing short of... The National Army carved out a no-combat zone behind Tiger Lines as a place for non-combatants to convene in. This was done by the army to mark anyone outside of the zone as a combatant, which means they could be attacked and could legally be seen as a target. The peace zone became the largest refugee camp in the world around 2009, but the government betrayed their own creation. The National Army shelled, bombed, and mortared the refugee camp and justified this action by saying the camp was used as a military front for the Tamil Tigers. This bombing included the direct bombing of a hospital that was apparently shelled 2,000 times. This wasn't all. Over the next few days, and then eventually, over the next few months, dozens of hospitals and infirmaries were bombed by the army. The radical attack led to radicalized backlash from the Tigers. Throughout 2009, the amount of suicide bombings increased at least threefold. The Tigers started to beat or kill anyone who didn't boastfully support the Tigers, in a thing that seems very similar to the Stalinist regime, where if you weren't stoutly in support of communism in the USSR, you were seen as an enemy. In reaction to all this, the army started to indiscriminately bomb all Tamil-controlled areas, which, as you can imagine, led the Tamil Tigers to more attacks, civilian kidnappings, and crimes against humanity. Everything about this war was back and forth, bloody, nasty, it was murderous, both sides were doing very evil actions and treating humans like they were nothing more than numbers. All of this culminated into May 18th, 2009. This marked the official end of the war when airstrikes and a ground invasion led to the end of the Tigers' leader, Prabhakaran's, life. Well, that is the claim. A true body of him was never confirmed, but a lot of fakes were presented. Nonetheless, nonetheless, his death broke the Tiger forces. The Tiger leaders asked to surrender and were given a place to do so. When they arrived, the leaders of the Tamils marched slowly toward the National Army with a white flag in the air. The National Army pointed their guns at them and shot every single one of them dead. The ambassador for the army said, They tried to surrender their weapons just a little too late. In the post-war period, President Rajapaksa launched large military celebrations. He then went on to the Temple of the Tooth and was honored by the Buddhist monks there, which was the first time this had happened in 200 years. Rajapaksa made a decree that there would be no more different races in the country, and that there would only be one race, Sri Lankans. For this doctrine and his honoring of the Buddhist faith, Rajapaksa ascended into a true cult of personality, He was named the universally glorious overlord of the Sinalese, and in other cases was called the monarchical emperor of the glorious land of Buddhism. The Rajapaksa administration focused on post-war development and reconstruction, particularly in the war-torn north and eastern provinces of the country. There was a significant investment in infrastructure, including roads, ports, and airports with the aim of revitalizing the economy and integrating previously marginalized area into the new national economy. The Rajapaksa government implemented various economic policies aimed at growth and development. The country experienced a period of rapid growth, partly due to the post-war reconstruction efforts and increased foreign investments, mainly from China. However, there were concerns about the sustainability of this growth and the increase in national debt to investing countries like China. Rajapaksa's government also faced many allegations of human rights abuse. International viewers deemed his regime abusive for the way it handled Tamil civilians in the end of the war. On top of this, there was a lot of accusations of corruption due to the tight power held by the president. The 2015 election resulted in President Rajapaksa's end. He barely lost out in the presidential vote. Pala Siracena of the United Democratic Front won the election in a shocking fashion. Saracena was the former minister of health in the nation and ran on a platform of anti-corruption and stability. The reason it was so shocking that he would win is because Rajapaksa had dominated politics, and the idea of him losing just didn't seem real, but people still gathered and voted against him. The Siracena presidency introduced a 100-day program as soon as he entered the office. It aimed at implementing immediate reforms. This included the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, which reduced the powers of the presidency and strengthened the democratic institutions siri took steps to release the civilian land previously occupied by military in the north and east to lessen ethnic tensions in the post-war period siri kept close ties between sri lanka and china but also wanted to shift to a policy of more neutral so they could have better interactions with india and the western world like the united states there are pictures of this president with president donald trump when he was in control of the United States, and it shows that there was a connection with the West at the same time as there was a connection with the East. The presidency of Saracena did face a lot of challenges, including criticism for how slow reconciliation after the Civil War was. He also faced accusations of not punishing the Civil War crimes hard enough. One of the most critical events during Saracena's presidency was the Easter Sunday bombings in April 2019. They targeted churches, hotels, and more, and killed over 250 people. The attacks targeted three christian churches and the hotels nearby in sri lanka the bombs were placed by an islamic extremist group called the national thawheath jamaath these attackers justified their actions as calling it a retaliation for the mosque shooting that occurred earlier in the year in new zealand the incidents raised serious concerns about national security and intelligence failures the criticism was mostly directed at the government for not acting on prior warnings of terrorism the bombings led to an internal call For a strong government that would be staunch in defending Sri Lankans. The 2019 election embodied this. Former President Mahinda Rajapaksa's brother, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, ascended to the presidency. He used nepotism to name Mahinda the Prime Minister of the country. Gotabaya found a lot of support in voting in the aftermath of the church problems because he was seen as a strong leader from his military experience and because of his last name. Gotabaya was only a military commander, but He also studied abroad in the United States, which gave him a global view and made him seem like a great leader. His presidency lasted until 2002. Gotabaya's governance style had been characterized by a strong central government. Critics have raised concerns about the concentration of power, alleging that he was an authoritarian. In October 2020, the 20th Amendment to the Constitution passed. The amendment expanded the presidential powers and reduced checks and balances. This acted as a counter to the 19th Amendment of the Sinhalese presidency. Gotabaya also faced criticism for the end of the Civil War due to human rights concerns that were never addressed. In 2022, Sri Lanka was facing its worst economic crisis in decades, characterized by severe foreign exchange shortage, soaring inflation, and widespread shortages of essentials like fuel, food, and medicine. The crisis was attributed to a combination of factors, including economic mismanagement, mounting foreign debts, and the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic on all sectors of the country. The economic hardships triggered massive public protests across the country, with citizens demanding the resignation of President Gotabaya. They held him responsible for the crisis, and the protests grew in scale and intensity day by day. In response to the escalating situation, Gotabaya reshuffled the cabinet and appointed Ranil wikren as the prime minister in May of 22, although his appointment was also controversial and met with mixed reactions. As the protests continued and the crisis deepened, President Godabaya was compelled to flee the country due to safety concerns, and subsequently he resigned from his position in July of 22. According to the Sri Lanka Constitution, in the event of a presidential vacancy, the parliament is responsible for electing a new president. They picked the prime minister. Despite the public unrest and some opposition within the parliament, he was elected as the new president of Sri Lanka by July of 22. Upon assuming the presidency, Wickramasinghe, with the immediate challenges of stabilizing the economy, ensuring the supply of essential goods, and restoring public confidence in the government. He also faced the issue of dealing with the international community, which included negotiating with the International Monetary Fund to gain a bailout package to keep the country floating. He is still president right now and is handling every level of the issues that the country is facing. Tea issues also were prominent. Ever since the tea industry was developed, it has been based on abusing a workforce. Today, the poorest group of people in Sri Lanka are the ones living in the tea-growing region. Today, there is one organization trying to assist these workers, the Tea Leaf Trust. It is a nonprofit that gives young adults in Sri Lanka a chance to break the cycle of working poverty by providing education to those workers in this area. A year-long program was made for impoverished people to get a diploma in one of many areas, like business, development, English, and more. And that all culminates in the present, where we still have the same president, Wickrey Machinge, and we still have a lot of the issues. Sri Lanka is in a deep state of recovery. The civil war tarnished the country for almost 30 years, and since then, political strife has caused the country to remain very unstable. The president is working hard to fix the nation, but the deep ethnic tensions, backlash from the civil war, and the hard economic situation all plague the country. Sri Lanka is filled with some of the most resilient people on earth. So let's hope their strength is soon rewarded with grace from the world. And that gets us to the end of our episode where I always like to do a takeaway or a mindset. And with Sri Lanka, that's going to be hold on tight. I say this advice after listening to the history of Sri Lanka and exploring it because these people have been through so much. Very few people in the world that are living today have seen what the Sri Lankans have seen in that 30-year period that was a civil war and the time since. Their country has been abusive to them. The National Army has abused one side of the people groups, and then that other people group has abused the Sinhalese and the ones at the top. All of this has culminated in a lot of tension, a lot of suffering, a lot of... Horrors, things that can't even be imagined, things that only seem to happen in books but have happened in this country. Sri Lankans are resilient. They've pushed through so much. They've pushed through at least 50 years of fighting, and they've spent more time as an independent country fighting and in a civil war than they have at peace. There is no way to truly explain how much these people have been through. But despite this, anyone who travels there mentions their friendliness, mentions their poise, their pride, their grace, how these people are full of smiles, they have pride in their religion, their culture, and they have pride in their country's history despite how dark it has been as of late. There is no way to articulate how great the Sri Lankans have survived this despite being abused by their government, by rebel forces, by anyone who has been involved in the country in the last 50 years. So I say you should internalize all that and push it into yourself. These people have resisted and pushed through some of the hardest things a human can go through in this world. And if they can survive that, they can survive literally 50 years of struggles, of attacks, of war, of abuses, of literal genocide in some cases then you can survive whatever you are going through. Be like the Sri Lankans. Be resilient. Hold on tight to whatever your beliefs are, no matter how hard things are. And if it is first world problems like school and work and things are tough, or it is very serious problems on the other side of the spectrum, whatever that is, you can hold on tight to that and you could push through. Because if these people have pushed through this horrible thing they've been going through for five decades, then you can absolutely push through whatever you're going through in the same exact way. So that brings us to the end where we've explored this deep, long, and complicated history of this very small nation that I was not expecting to bring this much to you guys for. And I was not expecting this much history to be brought to me. So with all that being said, I just want to say thank you all so much for listening and thank you for giving me the time of day with this episode. Most people can't figure out where Sri Lanka is on a map, and if they can, they only know it because it's the teardrop of India or it's Ceylon or it's tea. But these People and their history is the most important part. And the things they've been through cannot be expressed enough. The ups and downs that have happened throughout this country's long term history and very recent history, say the last 10, 20, 30 years, has been truly insane. And, you know, the amount of outcry from these people has been deafening if you listen. So I'm very glad you guys listened. I'm very glad we all know more about the situation now. And hopefully, it's one we can monitor very closely. And hopefully, the people of Sri Lanka both Sinhalese, Tamil, and anyone else are able to hold on tightly to their faith and they are able to get through everything that's going on because they are in a very tough position and they are the only people that will help them out of it. And I have no doubt these people will because they are some of the most resilient, proud, and hard fighting people in the world. So with all that being said, thank you guys so much for being here. And one more time, my name is Reese Karlinsky. This is Young History, and that was Sri Lanka. Thank you all so much for being here. Have a great day. Thank you.